0: Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 730. I'm Jim McDowell hosting the show. Now Richard's not on the show this week because I had the pleasure of interviewing Mark Miller. So for those of you who may be new to the show, you may not know who Mark Miller is. I'll give you a quick synopsis. Mark Miller was a professional motorcycle racer in the AMA scene in the 90s riding super bikes. He then went to some work in uh, commercial TV. He rode some of the motorcycles that you saw in TV commercials. He was the writer. He then went on to wor- to race at the TT and became the very first winner of the TT Zero class for electric motorcycles. I caught Mark just before he left for the TT this year as he was packing and getting ready to leave the very next morning. We talked about a lot of things. Basically we caught up to see what he was doing, why, what he was going to do at the TT this year. We talked about uh, a hill climb that he was a part of in Mexico. We also then discussed MotoGP, Mark, Mar- Mark Marquez and his injury, and we also talked about Moto America. Now, it's a long interview. It's about 90 minutes or so, so hopefully you guys will enjoy it. So with that, here's Mark. <laughs> Hey, Motor Potters Jim here with special friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, Mark Miller. Mark, what's going on in your shitty world of racing? We all want to know. <laughs> How you doing? I'm, I'm good, Mark. How are you?
1: Good to speak with you. I'm well. I'm actually a bit of a headless chicken at the moment because I'm literally leaving for the UK to the Isle of Man uh, at 7 a.m. in the morning. And it is now uh, 6 o'clock p.m. the night before I leave. So I'm literally packing while we talk. I hope that's okay.
0: No, that's fine. I love it. I love it. So back to the TT in two years, right after the two-year COVID absence, I guess.
1: So last year in 22 was a three-year break because you mm. figure you you ran around at 19, which I didn't do. I stopped at 17 and then they had to 20 and then they had to 21 and then they had to 22, which was three years. Last year was the return, wow. which I was there. In the capacity of uh, I was a kind of a color commentator. The the organization of the whole damn thing, which always used to kind of invite me as as a racer, um, paid teams, paid for accommodations and flights and such. You know, they have asked me to participate in their new streaming service, which is called TT Plus, and they gathered like the fastest woman around the TT, Jenny Tenmyth. And the fastest German, who's Horst Sager, who's a character, they both are. And myself being their fastest American token, you know, kind of an Anglo, or I should say American, North American. Um, So they kind of got us to kind of do some color commentating. So last year, we kind of just was sporadically spread out to like Manx Radio TT and the TT Plus, which is a video, you know, cameras. And it's sort of a live feed for the whole two weeks, which was brand new. Lots of glitches, lots of teething problems. But in the end, was really cool so mm-hmm. a lot of people seem to get it um they outsold they, they needed a certain number of subscriptions to break even it was kind of a big risk and they actually um, got enough subscriptions to pay for the thing within three days and it went on to do like five or six times more than that by the you know by the end so they they're happy with it and they brought it back for the second year now they've moved my dumbass up into the tower for a full-time co-presenter of the whole two weeks. So every time the bikes are on the track for practice qualifying or race, I'm gonna be trying to figure out what to yap about for like 38 hours over 11 days.
0: I don't think we'll have another a problem.
1: I mean, well, <laughs> the only problem, dude, I would agree, except the guy that they got last year who had a broken pelvis at the last second from a BSB crash, Dave Johnson from Australia, They had him up in the tower with the professional broadcaster voice and personality as a kind of a color uh, uh, helper, uh, injured guy who would have been racing at the TT. They threw him up in the tower last year, unbeknownst to us. He crushed it. He he just completely sounded the part. He knew how to do the, the excitement and the fucking delivery. It's something I've never, ever wanted to do and I still don't want to do is sound like a broadcaster dork you know, I hate broadcasters. I can't stand these commentators on MotorGP and stuff screaming and all this, shut up and just listen to the bikes, you know? So now I'm like part of the problem. I'm part of the machine. They've got me up there pretending to be some kind of a commentator. And what happened last year, thinking that Devo was going to be like, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, I go to know, you know, it's kind of cool. Like talk about different things as a racer. It turns out the guy had a fucking experience doing world superbike in australia the british the australian superbike series he's been a commentator for years so he went up there now he's like sounds like a professional guy and now they're going to replace him with the american idiot and i'm going to go up there and be completely like what he should have been last year which is like <laughs> it's pretty fast quarter huh you know so anyway it's, it's totally new it's totally scary but i've been studying everything and i'm hoping that i can pull off it enough to just you know sort of like pay back their trust that i'll be able to help out in some small way
0: i think you'll be fine i think it'd be cool i mean the question i got is are you as nervous to do that as you were to get on a bike into the tt
1: probably more um no i don't know you know it's like like you said dude we can rap right you and i can yap and talk racing and lie and bullshit and i was faster when um, it's, it's just that it's 38 hours. The one thing that I I'm, I think that I'll have to understand and, and learn is, you know, when they throw back and forth, they're sort of bantering for the whole time. The two commentators, you know, they're co-anchors. And so if one guy, the professional guy, says, oh, and leading off, you know, it's number one, John McGinnis. And there he goes. Wow, great start. And then here's number two. There's James Hillier. and oh, Okay, good launch. And then here comes, you know, and then they go, and then I'm supposed to take over. And I don't have any experience saying, oh, and here comes James, you know, Dean Harrison. And, oh, wow, that's a great line. Or no, he screwed that up. He should have fed the clutch better. What an idiot. You know, I'm just saying, like, I I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't have a voice. I don't have any kind of – anyway, I know we're kind of just slammed right into this inner- this little podcast fun. But it's, it's literally tomorrow. Like, I've yeah. been studying for four weeks. And I get on a plane in a few hours. And I fly over there and grab another plane over to the Isle of Man. And within, like, three days, I'm going to be sitting up in the tower – with like the clerk of the course and the the head of police, the head of the fire department and ambulance services and like all the safety guys, the whole Mansk radio T, T people at the start finish line up in a tower like at an, air, at an airport. And I'm going to be looking out this window with all these monitors pretending to be a fucking commentator for the first time in my whole life. And so it's tomorrow, you know, literally tomorrow I leave. So it's got to a you know, it's a weird time. It's a weird time.
0: But isn't that the best time though?
1: Oh, it's great. It's great. It's cool just to be kind of a part of it, you know, We we had a few years off where I didn't want anything to do with it because, you know, we had done it, got the t-shirt, had some friends killed, survived some periling stuff myself. And I felt like, I'm to step away. That's cool. Did it. Awesome. And I didn't really want to spend too much energy on it for a couple of years. And they'd kind of asked me about, you know, if I wanted to be a part of it. And I was like, well, oh, just, you know, I'm not really. So now after a few years away, it's been cool to sort of be invited back to be part of, the organism you know kind of like part of the community part of the family if you will and going last year was really difficult because once they started warming up the bikes and the klaxon calls and the tanoi and the attention paddock you know 30 minutes please top 20 numbers pull you know push your bike up onto the straightaway for the start of the next race and it's like the first time you hear that you just chills and hairs go up on the back of your neck and like Oh my God, like that is, it's almost like PSD, PTSD, where you just hear that. And you're like, <gasps> you know, I didn't think I'd ever be here before. I didn't think I'd ever hear that again. And I was naturally subconsciously and, and consciously going, I'm going to go and now and rip down Bray Hill at 180 mile an hour, like from a standing stop and literally take my life into my hands again. And it it was like, dude, but it was cool because there was no chance I'm going to get killed on the day when I heard that I ain't riding. I'm just going to go and hang out with like a couple other racers like Steve Plater and Kevin Donald and a couple of these XTT winners and whatnot. And just sort of absorb it and talk about it and be a part of it and love it and support it and, um, not take that risk anymore. It is still nerve wracking to see your, your mates, you know, go out there and get dressed up and they're all nervous but it was a kind of a weird deal because, <clears throat> slow down a little bit, I'm getting all excited. Um, overseeing the whole thing, kind of like um, an overseer of the whole thing, you're actually keeping tabs on all the racers in real time as a third person looking down at an umbrella of what this 38 mile lap is, this island becomes a racetrack. And we are scrutinizing and meticulously de- detailing each individual rider, teams, bikes, and then you see them set off and you're following their progress. It's sort of an odd, you become almost like a parental, like kind of an, um, it's its almost like they are they are the children that are out there doing the soccer game and you are up in the stands with the other parents kind of, really wanting them to do well and stay safe and make their goals and pass well and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, but I assume that's that's an exciting thing for some parents is to watch their kids play sports. Well, when you're up there in the tower sort of really scrutinizing all these guys, you get super involved. And actually, they had six fatalities last year. Mm. And until the very first one red flagged, the very first time, it took about three or four days out of the 11, let's say. On the third day, there was a red flag and everyone had to stop and the whole island had to stop. You know, the roads are closed and now all the riders have just pull over on the side of the road and wait for this whatever. You know, we don't know because they don't actually tell us either. So there's been an incident. And then the hairs on the back of my neck start st- standing up again because these it's one of the kids playing soccer. It's one of the kids down there on the field that you've been watching and rooting for and scrutinizing and talking about and now now one of them has had an accident and so that was a very odd thing it was also brought back all of that fear and like holy fuck like i wonder who that was and then you finally hear about it at eight o'clock that night not before maybe the next morning and you're like holy shit was it really we lost so and so that's crazy. And it usually takes about three days for it to settle in. Like the first, the first morning after you wake up, scratch your eyes and go like, ah, oh, man, how cool. And he goes, Ding. you your go, whole oh, fuck. We lost X, Y, Z yesterday. That sucks. That sucks because he's still gone this next morning and his parents are being notified, his wife, his kids, whatever, his neighbors, his fucking high school buddies. They're all going to find out that they've Yep, we lost him. We lost—I'm going to make up a name. We lost Jerry. You know, Jerry has been doing this racing stuff. He used to ride back in high school. We used to say you're a nut, or you're not a nut. Or he started racing, and we we're like, "Well, he's racing, and now he's doing really well, and now he's going to go do the roads." And you're like, "Oh, be careful, mate!" And like, "Be careful!" And then we saw him at you know Christmas party, did anything. Like, well, be careful. All right, love you, man. It happened. Jerry fucking died on the roads, and it just sucks because you just know, like every Christmas. He's still gone. You still see it on Facebook. You still, you know, on his birthday or, you know, whatever. So that it's weird because it happened six times last year. Yeah. And in a way I felt a little tinge of like, Ooh, I'm kind of like one of the sort of like a drug dealer that's giving the drugs to the user and say, Hey, we're all, we're all supporting this. We're all encouraging this thing this racing on the public roads now I'm kind of amplifying it putting a big spotlight and I'm part of that I'm no longer the talent I'm the producer I'm the director I'm the you know I'm like commentating so I'm a little bit part of that engine that machine that's behind it all which is a totally different feeling it was unique I didn't expect it well now it's going to be even more because I'm up in the tower I'm not going to just be kind of like oh I'm down in Bray Hill or I'm just I'm down at Glen Helen and they throw it to you you're with some pretty girl and who's also like does formula one or whatever. And she asks you a question and you answer, like he, all you had to do is answer like three questions and then you don't hear from them for four hours. So now it's going to be like this continuous thing. So whole new chapter for my little shitty world of racing on topic. And um, I'm literally packing to go do this. I've been studying my ass off for four weeks and I'm about to go and, and literally tackle this job. It's literally a job. They all lost their voices last year up in the tower. Cause you talk for like, two weeks straight you know for four hours six hours a day you're yapping and they all lost their voices so it's kind of cool it's fun it's a challenge and i'm excited it's not racing but it's still nerve-wracking a little bit you know you're kind of stepping up to the plate i studied really hard so that i was prepared and i knew a lot about the riders and their histories and their recent results in bsb and northwest 200 and you know i'm hoping to be able to sort of like um what is that like fake it you know like kind of like (laughs) pass it off pass it off uh, pass on pull it off i don't know make it make it yeah fuck it fuck it so you know who knows maybe this i I honestly think it'll be a one-year deal i mean i think it'll be a one-time deal i i'm told that it would be nice if it wasn't but dude it's okay if it is like a hundred percent like i just want to do the best i can and just have that experience but who knows like you don't know i don't anticipate this or really want this but 18 years from now I could still be up there as this fucking old guy who's been doing it for 20 years and it just happens to be this is the first year so you don't know but you're willing to just sort of you know the universe kind of like throw shit at you and you just kind of go well i'll just try that you know it's not hurting anything they're paying me a little bit so it's not like i have to pay to do it and they're getting my flights and my accommodation just like the old days so it's just i'm not riding the motorcycle it's trippy dude
0: Uh, that's pretty wild man i mean to me i remember the chats between you and Jim when you went to the TT and road and you have that exact same enthusiasm and the studying and the whole nine yards. It sounds to me like it's identical, man. It's just like, I've got sort of chills just talking about it because you, you're just, you can tell you're jazzed, right? Weird. It's a, Weird. Yeah. It's bizarre. I think it was kind of like, you know, for me, it's like I clubbed. I admit that wasn't very good. I'll admit that too. But essentially you stop. Right. And I like set it off to the side said, you know, eh, I'll play with bikes, but I'm not serious about this racing thing. And then I wind up doing, becoming a host of the show. It's like, and I remember the first time you get that, you're like, well, I got notes and I got all this and I've done this and I, I've watched it. I've watched it again. And I've watched it one more time after that. I think I'm ready. And then it's like, Skylar counts it in and like, well, we're doing a show. <laughs> I get where you are. I'd like, it's not the same, but I get the understanding of it. Right. So cool. But I mean, that's pretty rad. So what else? I mean, what else is going on? I mean, that's pretty wild. I mean, that's been taking up a lot of time. But I've, I've heard rumor here that you're doing like some mountain climbing or something like road rallying up a mountain in Mexico or something. Is that true?
1: Huh? Um, definitely not um, mountain Uh, climbing it what i did is a few years ago but right before covid actually we were um, kind of uh, i don't know aware of a of a baja um, california hill climb that is longer than pike's peak it's it's the longest uh, paved road race or i'm sorry hill climb in the world it's it's not on the dirt it's it's on the pavement but it's in the middle of nowhere down in mexico and it's it's on a one it's on a, a road that dead ends up at a, um, what do they call it? Like a, like an, where they look at astr- astrology, astronomers, astronomers, astrometer, astrom- you know, like a. Oh, huge... an astronomy,
0: an astronomy telescope area. Yeah, are they... it, it has
1: a observatory, like.
0: That's it. Okay, yeah.
1: So observatory with a huge thing. It's way up at like 12,000 feet. Not as high as Pikes, which is fourteen thousand. But there's a there's a road, and so some guy, some cool guy who is kind of a mover and shaker in Ensenada and Tijuana and, you know, not Tijuana, Ensenada and, and other places. He was, you know, also an enthusiast. And he's like, dude, why don't we like, why don't we, I'll go tra- talk to the government and see if we can't put on a hill climb up once it starts like climbing. So he sorted it out. He had all the meetings, long story short, too late. He got permission to shut the roads down for like four days and put on an event and the event was this um stan martin mater san pedro martin san pedro Mar- martin anyway i thought because carlin dunn had the current track record and he's a multi-time pike's peak winner mm-hmm. he was on pace to to break the track record again a couple years ago when rennie, rennie Sk- skaysbrook who had just done his finishing run and broke the track record on an aprilia product v4 carlin was coming up next or at least a couple after rennie who by the way was a newcomer last year he is a friend of mine i met him at the pikes peak and now he's doing the tt first time last year on a 600 second time this year on a 1000 so i've been following his progress we're friendly Uh, he works for cycle news in the states he's australian by birth Uh, carlin dunn unfortunately with a couple like 20 30 yards to go fucking lost the front and went off the cliff and died, got killed at Pike's peak a few years ago on the last time they ran Pike's peak with motorcycles. They stopped after that because they're like, that's it. We've lost another motorcyclist. We, keep, we fuck them. Fuck those guys. We're, we, we can't have people killed when they crash, they die. And with the cars, they just kind of, they go, they cartwheel down the hill and they all survive because they're in these huge roll cages or whatever. Long story short, again, carlin dunn had the record down in San, in baja and i thought you know and i i I knew carlin also because he was my mentor when we went when i went to the pikes peak to do the pikes peak he was like my assigned guy they all assigned every like veteran two or three newcomers he was my veteran got to know him had a long chat on the phone about the tt he thought about doing the tt we had like a three-hour conversation on the phone before i ever met him i knew carlin very well well he had the record at this california baja thing which is fucking how long is it 150 corners And, um, the lap record, his record, he had it at 1455, 14 minutes, 55 seconds, 150 corners from like 3,800 feet to like 9,900 feet. It's like, that's the altitude climb 150 corners. So kind of heard of it. It It's kind of niggling at me. I go, what is that? What is that? And I saw an onboard of Carlin's Dunn's on board for the baja race sorry i'm taking so long to answer your question
0: it's okay take your time i like this i'm
1: interested well so i'm like what is this like where is it i'm looking on the map i'm looking, I'm looking at the arm boat, on boards of like a couple of different cars and the kind of thing and or one porsche went off the road off the cliff you know and kind of got destroyed didn't kill anybody and i'm like trippy like wouldn't it be kind of fun maybe i should just take the mirrors off of my personal tuano in a Praia Tuono, but it's not even the newest Tuono. It's the old version, which has got the RSV Austrian-made twin engine in there. And I thought, well, why don't I kind of go and race that thing just for fun, even if it's just a pop wheelies or whatever. But, of course, popping wheelies, the idea of doing wheelies lasted about 16 seconds because as soon as you decide to do something, you're like, okay, it's on. And dude, we pulled the motor out, we lightened the pistons and the rods and got titanium valves in this old motor. it's a 2010, you know, it was, it was a low mileage vehicle, but no ABS, no fly-by-wire, no fucking traction control, no wheelie control. It was pure, pure, It was the last year they made them before they all went to the V4s and all the electronics, a lot of the electronics were because of government regulations. They said, we need ABS on these things. They're, you know, you're selling bikes with 200 horsepower to 18 year olds. We got to have some kind of systems on it so they don't just go and flip over and crash the front and whatever. So they, the bike I got was just the last generation, 2010, before they started doing all the electronics aids, mandatory by law ish. So had the big brakes, put on I had the big Brembos, I had the Olins front and rear, I had the lighter wheels. I started testing all the different tires that you could possibly get your hands. On. I paid for them out of my pocket. I started testing all the Metzler stuff from Germany and some of the Italian stuff from Pirelli. And sometimes they're made in, in Japan or something. And then I started testing the Bridgestones made in Japan, which was very interesting and a couple others. And I ended up really liking the Bridgestone products, which because it turned a little bit quicker, they had brand new models out called RS 11, which was, you know, The RS-10 was really popular with a lot of the magazines, like Rennie at Cycle News. He's, you know, he's like, dude, Bridgestone's a killer. We didn't want to run the race compounds, which is the R11, because you had to have warmers. They did not work when they were cold. And the way that this, on this public road, Baja, California hill climb, which has a really decent average speed, the whole bottom section is flat out, like fifth and sixth gear on a thousand cc. It's just ah, forever. So it's like super high speed. But then. When you get up to the top it twists like chicane after chicane after i mean bus stops like left right left right left right left and you just can't I, I, and then you have to like ride down the hill after everybody's done i'm like fuck, street, fuck race tires like we're not gonna run race tires on this thing. let's just run the very best street comp race comp type stuff ended up with the bridgestones called bridgestone says hey Done this huge fucking test of all the different brands and stuff. And I knew a couple of people at Bridgetown. I said, Would you like to support this? You know, just kind of like throw some tires at us. So they ended up throwing some tires at us, which was really cool because it cut down the cost a lot. Cause I, we're just kind of doing it, me and like two friends. So they sent me a little brick, a little, little, you know, um, I don't know, Tower of Pisa of tires. And that sorted that out. Got some racing fuel delivered, which we couldn't take with us across the border. You have to get the racing fuel delivered. And I found out that if we had just a small percentage of oxygen in the fuel, it'll counter the, the high altitudes that we're going to end up at. So I didn't want to go with some kind of a massive, like, you know, 110 octane with like 30% oxygen or some stupid thing that wouldn't work with my stock engine. We just had a little bit of octane and a little bit of oxygen and dude my bike just came alive it had a you know a MotoGP air cleaner in it and it had the flash ECU from Aprilia the full exhaust kit uh, Akrapovic made by Akrapovic for Aprilia for that engine with that ECU and the airbox so it's kind of like I just had this clean as fuck little twin that was lightweight and had no electronics and we went and tackled this blah thing like why not and it wasn't really to win it it was to beat carlin dunn's time that was there for three years at that time at that time he had had he had held the record for three years and this is post crash at the pike's peak and i literally had this overwhelming warmth flood through me when i thought about why don't i race against carlin's time wouldn't it be beautiful to sort of like resurrect him and say mate dude booby I'm, I'm coming after that time of yours. You're on the, you're on the map again. Like you are alive in my heart. Like I'm going to race against you and welcome back, you know, let's do this. I want to race against Carlin, even though he's already, he can't defend himself. Unfortunately, that no one had even come close to that time in three years. So I'm like, that's it. That's, that's a good goal. Like, like, let's do that. So we, you know, took out the end and all this stuff. And now we're, we went down to Baja. We went down as a sort of, um, we took a couple little 300 three bikes down there as a as an Intel you know, gathering. Went down there for some, there's a good word for it, but I can't remember it right now. And gathered some Intel and saw the track, went and ran it up and down it a bunch of times. i watched it just like the TT. I probably watched the onboards um, freaking, what, a thousand times, you know, freaking 700 times. I don't know, but I'd do it like four a day or five a day. And just for fun, I'll share this with you. There was a really cool 1080p dashboard camera from one of the slow cars, car pussies, I call them. And it was just some slow piece of shit. But dude, it was perfect. Like Carlin Dunn's old 720 or 480 GoPro was really not good. It was, it was kind of bad. But you could see it and you could hear it really well and you could get a gist. But the car one was clean. So what I did is I sped up the car video. And I matched it so that the car was hitting different points that Carlin was at speed. And I put Carlin's audio from his motor on top of that instead of the car audio. So now I basically had Carlin Dunn's run with Carlin Dunn's shifting points. But the visuals was a perfectly clean 1080 from outside of a car windshield But there was no banking left and right so i could just read the track and read the shifting points and the rpms and kind of learn 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 and i sped it up 30 seconds because i thought well let's try to learn it 30 seconds faster so that not like learning at the winning pace i want to break the record so i sped it up so it was kind of cool i even did some night stuff i ran it backwards like i had a bunch of little video aids that i i'm sorry just rambling on but Mm -hmm. when we went down there we were highly prepared and even though it was a 2010 motorcycle in like 2020 or 2019 or whatever it was, um, it was a good bike. It had the oxygenated fuel slightly. It had a you know a little bit more reliable, lightweight p- pieces inside the engine. We also had um, micro it and also had ceramic bearings put in the crank and, the, and not the crank, but maybe the gearbox or something. So we had a lot of less diction, had ceramic bearings in all the wheels and in the uh, sprocket carrier. So we kind of had low resistance, rolling resistance. So we didn't have like a 218 horsepower Street Fighter from Ducati, which probably would honestly, it would smoke what I did. I, if I had that bike, it would have been even better. But what we did have was enough to not only win the event, but in the end, because nobody would tell us until the fucking award ceremony, he goes, okay, and now for the winner, Mark Miller, as you all probably thought, he's won the thing, but listen to what the time was. And so instead of doing 14.55, I did 1430. So I beat the track record by 25 seconds.
0: That's crazy. That's amazing. It was fun. It was super fun. Then we drank beer. That's fun too.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And the guy, you know, uh, Mark Rittner, who helped me, this uh, proya guru, he's worked on it for a long time. He's an older guy. He's super cool and super smart. He freaking put my bike basically in his kitchen for like, Honestly, a week, like uh, eight days, my shit was in his kitchen because he had better light and also better temperature than his garage and stuff. He had better everything. And he built this engine for me in his kitchen while well, he was down there with Va, and After we won, you know, he's like crying. You're like, whoa, oh, how cute. You know, it's kind of like he, it, it was a quest. It was cool.
0: Yeah. You got to have quests sometimes. Yeah. Otherwise, life isn't fun, right? There's got to be a goal, something, right? You got to yeah. make yourself yes. better. So, yeah,
1: something to sink your teeth into.
0: So let's talk about Hollywood a little bit. Like I know at some point you were doing like some stunt coordinating with bikes and movies or something like that. Anything new there?
1: Um, the only thing I've ever done in Hollywood myself was uh, you know, a couple of sh- things where they asked me to be a motorcycle rider on public roads and I got filmed and did a good money and all that kind of stuff um for like what canon cameras and all a bunch of stuff but it's not i don't have a sag card i don't it's not something i do it was just something i had done a couple times because matter of fact jenny tenbeth the fastest woman at the tt was hired for the same exact reason that i was is they needed for the uh, tom cruise movie when he's playing 007 version of himself um
0: oh, Mission impossible? impossible
1: like four one of them with all the bmw thousand oh, yeah. dollars in it yeah she was the woman in the leathers to give it the shape of a woman's shape she was the stunt person for that so they kind of sometimes hire road racers to do uh, difficult high speed road racing shit on public roads so anyway they they tapped us and I've done that a few times and she's done it a few times but that's all that's all my okay. wife is in the film industry she's uh really actually down in Oklahoma city working on the sequel to twister from the original was like in the 90s very popular yeah. I'm uh, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. Okay. So that that uh, she's down in Oklahoma City doing the sequel to Twister, and um, I was down there recently just to see her. But that, that that's not me; that's her. So we have a little bit of film shit in the family.
0: Yeah, still being an audiophile, apparently. Oh <laughs> yeah, huge. <laughs> that's never going to stop. Huge. Is it?
1: <laughs> nah, I re I, much to my dismay, i i revamped my vinyl um interest you know just several weeks ago actually and kind of i got a new turntable and a new stylus which is the needle and a new preamp a phono amp which is the amplification of it's a special kind it's not the same as other things it's you gotta have a special kind of amp that amplifies that needle wiggling so i got a nicer one and then just kind of revamped the whole thing not mega you know it's not like a 25 forty dollars turntable setup it's it's not that but it's certainly good and phew, it's so good so it's good. so good it's so good, and I've gotten That's into good. headphones again. And another thing I've revisited is is high-end over-the-year headphones, and I have you know kind of re upped that whole thing. And I'm I'm just about after this TT, I'm going to pull the trigger on an, on yet another set of cans, and you know they're going to throw over six thousand dollars, you know, just for mm-hmm. the headphones. And but dude, you got to hear these things. The ones I have are not six grand, but they they're actually thirty something, hundred, and they're you know brilliant fucking drivers and which is super lightweight it's lighter than titanium more expensive thinner stronger and just the transits how fast they they can react to the signals it just gives you this realistic it's almost like having another eardrum on top of your eardrum you know it's it, it's moving so
0: fast yeah they used to do so, back in the day they used to have beryllium brake calipers in a formula one car because beryllium oh, really? is yeah beryllium is incredibly light but it's incredibly mm-hmm. rigid which is the thing mm-hmm. that you want right so it makes sense that for audio that would be totally cool because you have that rigidity right so it's, the frequency is going to mm-hmm. go right through it but the, they had to ban them in f1 because machining beryllium is a carcinogen it's so i'm toxic. yeah Weird. it's one
1: of the only companies it's a french company that they do all their r d themselves and manufacturing they have a clean room like nasa and they're all in there with special suits and, and oxygen headphones you know, that's oh yeah. Well, they also do tweeters. I also have home t- home tower speakers of the same brand. It's called Focal. It sounds like Focal. It's spelled like Focal. But it's Focal. uh Handmade in France by the French, by the people. They do the drivers, the, the crossovers, the cabinets. They do all the R and D testing. Well, the beryllium forty millimeter uh, cups, you know, the actual drivers that are on the headphones are similar to the tweeters that are in my um, are in the they're top of the line speakers. They're different. But anyway, yeah, super rigid, super thin, and uh, really fine, finitely sensitive to every single frequency. So, And they just had an updated one. This is why I'm going to do the, like, an upgrade is because they just came out with a new, slightly tweaked of their Utopia. Their, their top of the line um, has, has been tweaked ever so slightly with the coils behind it, a little tiny different material make it a little better a little bit better low end and a little better high end and I mean these things go up like 50,000 hertz like it's from like five hertz to 50,000 hertz is the range of possibility and you say well, yeah your ear can't understand that they your ear could never hear that but that's not the point the point is that it can do 50,000 hertz so it's more effort, effort effortlessly doing 15 hertz you know which is where you can hear so it's 15 kilohertz sorry thanks kilohertz, right Anyway, yeah, usually so the whole, kilohertz. Yeah. yeah, so it's 15,000 is, is 50 kilohertz. So 15 kilohertz, you can hear. 10,000, you know, you can. 5,000, you can. And certainly, you know, one, two. But um, anyway, it's, it's fun. It's fun because when you put on the vinyl and I go through a tube amp, which is the, the amp for the headphone amp, is tube. So it's analog to analog to analog to my, is fucking headphones to my ear, which is analog. It's organic, but it's still analog. There's no digital anything. It's super fun, like it's super fun because you're only taking a physical piece of etched vinyl that's then moving a physically moving a fucking little needle that is made in Japan that is a piece of art. I mean, it's a piece of science and it's following not only left and right jiggies, but up and down jiggies, which gives you the, the bass and the treble separate and the left and right channel. And then they have like 45 RPM vinyl, virgin vinyl. It's, it's slow cut. Like There's all these cool records that you can get for audiophile junkies. And then you put an audiophile needle on it, then an audiophile amplification of that that goes into your ampli- your audiophile tube amp that then amplifies it to the cable that goes up to your ears. And then you got the 6,000 set of cans, or actually my best right now, about $3,600. Brilliant. They're closed back. I got to get the open back version, but you, you know the whole room can hear them at that point but um, it's insane. It's like you're in the room. I mean, it's, you're in the room, like not even like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. I get it. You know, my fucking AirPods are pretty good too. No, it's not like that. It's crazy. It, it, it's almost eerie. Like you, if you have, and it's recorded in 1958, if you've got a stand-up bass, a fucking electric guitar plucking and a sax and a whatever, they're in the room and you have the spatial, the depth, you know, the drums, Everything and they're in the room with you, and it's super neat. And what's cool is with headphones, it doesn't really bother anybody else in the neighborhood. So you can be sitting there for three hours, sipping on something like wine or beer or whatever, and have this concert for three hours, and nobody cares. Like, no one, my neighbors have never called the cops. I definitely push the envelope, and I when I play out of the big speakers, but it's kind of nice to give them a break once in a while, but still get my fix.
0: I get it. You got to have your fix at a time. I mean, I, that's why I still travel to races. Cause I want to get that fix again. I want to get the buzz of just being around everybody, you know, mm-hmm. just saying, I understand. I get it. So question Moto GP, just throwing this one out here. Mark Marquez and his whole saga of his arm. I just want your thoughts.
1: It was bound to happen eventually. You know, when Lorenzo used to say this this (laughs) fucking little fucking idiot, he just bounces and keeps going. I don't understand it. How could it happen? And then they find out later you hear, you hear from the doctor sort of like almost by mistake. They go, well, Mark Marcus has got rubbery bones. He's when he was younger, he had a more, a little more elasticity in his bones than most. And so every time he would bounce, he would just keep bouncing and bouncing. Well, finally the rubber band was, was snapped. we, gluing two sides of a rubber band together is hard it's very difficult so i think and i don't know everything dude i'm just sort of like filling in some gaps and making up some shit but that in general i was told i remember a or whatever the motor Speed guy says look he's got very flexible bones like it's it but and what had happened when he finally got smacked by the front of that bike the front t- wheel the front tire it hit his biceps so hard it finally it was enough to break that envelope that threshold and crack his fucking bone in half and they've been trying to glue it back together ever since
0: yeah.
1: so i don't know i think the guy is actually um honestly on the whole and i am not a mark marcus hater but i think he's reckless i think that he's dangerous and i think that he's been doing it since moto two he just sort of doesn't care about anyone else on the track and it's worked for the most part to make him win races and championships but i can see how. It's sort of like, on the whole, he's kind of a dick, and that's why Rossi didn't like him. That's why a lot of guys just kind of went. Like, he's a dick. He doesn't really have a lot of safety around the others. He just sort of will throw it under. And look at him. He just smashed into people. He's a fucking bowling ball half the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's I see slow that. Down. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I'm like, always admired Mark's talent from this. Like I say, like he's never going to win another race, but it that. Like this guy could do things on a motorcycle that I could only dream of. And I know what it takes to do what he's doing because I tried that. Right. So I have this appreciation for what he can do, but at some point, and it seemed like it was later on, you know, after he sort of there at the end, when all the other bikes got better and everybody else kind of figured out how to ride like him and push that envelope and save it on the elbow that he then became a dick. Right. Because then he was, as you said, he got a little dangerous. And there was a lot more contact, a lot more incidences, and he just wasn't the same. So, uh, I don't know.
1: The only it's, guy that rides anywhere similar to what his style is, is, um, is Bender. What Mark does is he flies, if you've ever ridden XR 100s with a steel shoe, you typically something it, like an XR two point hundred. you go into the corner sliding both the front and the rear together, together. Yep. He goes dirt track, corner. so I know.
0: I know exactly where you're coming from.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Bender did the same thing at Jerez recently. Going into that last corner, he was mm. literally sliding both wheels in line on his knee, flat sideways. Well, that's what that's what Marquez has been doing for years, and no one else can do it on the Honda. So of course, they're trying to ride it like it's a motorcycle. Well, mm. Mark doesn't ride it like a motorcycle. He just rides it like an XR100. And slides and, and sometimes it's there's some tracks it's funny i remember back when he was really really hot shit and could hardly lose there was a couple tracks and i don't remember which one they were which his style just did not work and he just kept throwing it down in there sliding both wheels and it's like yeah it doesn't work and he kept just missing the back end of everybody he would just miss the back end like almost plowing into them. and he just could not go any faster because that was the way he the only way he could really make that honda work and it didn't it, the track did not allow it to work that way but anyway yeah it's a very distinct thing that he does but then again he's on the front so much that's why he saves it on, i think he does it on purpose half the time or at least he used to he was sliding the front so much so often constantly i mean every corner basically that he would just sort of push it and flirt with it and then just go oh on my knee on my elbow ha-ha. you know he's just tucking that front in every corner mm. unusually so yeah motor he's cool though I, i'm still a big fan like a massive- so
0: what what do you think about all the shape shifting, and the all that, for against? Don't care. Well, they're, do or they're, where they're dropping the rears coming out of the corner, and the bike squats and becomes like a dragster, and then you know it rebounds itself back as it comes to a corner and puts it back into the position you want, just so that you can get on the gas, right? Because you're just lowering that center of gravity. So they're just they're shifting the mm-hmm. frames around. My what's your take? I, I'm I'm against I'm against it. Like I. I don't think that's, a. I mean, that's, I get it. There's, I get both sides of the equation, right? There's, this is a prototype bike. And the idea is here's a set of rules. Build a bike to be the fastest bike around this track. Okay. That's fine. But then I also look at it like, yeah, are you really ever going to use that kind of technology on the street? Traction control. I understand the winglets. I could maybe understand, but like, I don't see like a whole shot device where you just clamping the front end down. And then lowering the back down so it's like literally inches off the ground to take off mm. is not what it's it's not what you're going to use on the street unless you're you know going to drag it or whatever so i mean we have that an debate inter- that,
1: that runs around it's an interesting point that you make that i've never even considered which is amazing uh meaning the point is amazing that this is not a trickle down to a street bike there's never a time when this is going to trickle down this is tr- strictly for the engineering and the lap time and everybody's having you know kind of pushing all the envelopes i don't really have an opinion honestly it, it, to me it's hmm. i mean the starting devices and the but the, yeah when they push that thing and they go down the street and it's like uh, just down on its ass it's kind of bizarre i'm trying to think do i want that do i want zero electronics or i want them to be able to spin the tires up on the exit do we want them high siding again and hurting our guys even though they're getting hurt left and right anyway i think a more appropriate question, not a more appropriate question, but another question I could pose to you and your people, because you guys have obviously been talking, is what do you think of the sprint races? Is it is a net positive, or is it too costly to everybody's safety and the schedule being all screwed up and having everybody fuck up in in FP1 trying to make some lap times too quickly, and now we've got like seven guys out?
0: Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's fun here. to watch. Right. So for me, it is an incredibly entertaining six, or, you know, not six, seven, eight, ten 10 laps, whatever it is, right? It's half the distance of whatever it the main race is. And I think it's interesting because it throws away everything. There's no tire conservation necessary. And as Kenny Roberts Jr. would say, anybody can ride a piece of shit fast for six laps, right? Mm-hmm. So even if it's a piece of junk, you can ride it fast enough and be right over your head long enough to at least make it all interesting. But a True. lot of, for for us, we kind of st- I kind of stopped and we talked about this was you tested at Portimao? Mayo. Then a week later, you came back and had the race there. Well, now everybody's already been tuned in from essentially a week prior testing, which we thought, well, that's why everybody's going so crazy, because everybody knows what's going on, right? Everybody's dialed in. Everyone can go really fast and you've sort of by rule. Have got everybody's bike to be relatively equivalent except for the Honda, right? We'll just toss that to the side. And I'm like, wow, that's why the racing's been crazy. And that's why we had all of this. I mean, yeah, Mark screwed up big time. He blew the brakes, braking marker, and took Oliveira out and whatnot. But, you know, Bezecchi took people out. Everybody was just pure chaos at the beginning of the season. Yeah. And Bastellini. Like, Bastellini. Yes. Yeah. That, which that hurts because that
1: was marini right was that best yeah, was Beth, was yeah or
0: marini? i can't remember i think my Marini. took him out well, this, mm. but the problem is bastionese out right which mm. i had tipped bastionese to be world champion because i think he's got more mental capacity than Yaya. like Banya is fast but he's missing something like the concentration just disappears i mean yeah, he's how, a bit, how many uh, falls erratic yeah it just doesn't stay on the bike like what's yeah, but I watched him just throw it away at Kota when we were down there. It was oh just. God.
1: how many times? Like, how oh, many times I did know. the guy just say, oh, come on, not again? Jeez,
0: and then he kind of like, he comes at it from like, well, I want to know what happened. Well, what happened is you fell off, pal. I like you know? I mean, yeah. but th- there's. The I, other... mean, I
1: admire that he, he plays a nice guy, but I think he's a, he's a big, vicious compar- competitor more so than his persona. I yeah. like the guy. I think he's super talented, and he's actually, he has a desire to win.
0: Yeah, they're all super talented. They wouldn't be there if they didn't have it. And you got to be kind of a prick to be there anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So all that all makes sense. But then the other thing that people say is that the the, the sprint races increase the crazy because the arrow on the MotoGP bikes prevents you from passing. Because now we've got rake and wash and all that like we see or have in Formula One. So if you're going to make places, it's got to be in the first two laps before the tires get too hot before the aerodynamics get all out of shape and get everybody out of shape so i'm like Mm -hmm. "Eh." again it's like well do you have the aerodynamics you know you 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 please the manufacturer it's kind of weird because at one point all the control was basically dorna because they said look we're not gonna let you run all this crazy high-tech crap we said no we're not gonna do it oh and by the way if you don't believe us we're gonna put crt bikes out there which they did they called everybody's bluff so or called Honda's bluff, I guess, and said, hey, look, here's your standard electronics that everybody's got to work on. Well, then you just kind of let everybody go. And all credit to DG Delaney and his, and his team, right? They they figured out a way to do a mechanical system that is basically a, an analog computer that makes the bike do what you're trying to make it do to lower it and raise it, which is, from an engineering yeah, point that's super cool, right? It's mm-hmm. amazingly cool. But I'm like, does that make the show better? So what is it? Because it all comes down to this. Well, is it race entertainment? Are we are we trying to provide entertainment or do we have a sport? I've never
1: been a fan of control tires, control bikes, yeah. control. Like I remember DMG or something. They were like, oh, we want everyone to be on. We have a horsepower limit. Everyone has to dyno at the end of the race. Fuck you and go yeah. stick your rules up your ass. Like I hate that shit. I would like to have a rule book that's basic. Have a certain weight limit. Have a certain this. Have a certain that. But kind of let it be to the engineers and let the cream rise and when other someone rises for three years and the next guy comes up and betters him and that's what at the highest end should be and the only thing that maybe there could be sort of a communist sort of slant to it is having a price cap because if you had you know let's say honda or somebody else just bring in like just billions or something and it's unfair to let's say the Austrian guys or the you know the smaller manufacturers, it's sort of like ridiculously slanted, then that's not really a parody because it's sort of like they can just buy themselves. That's what happened with Mugen in the electric stuff, a TT Zero at, at the Isle of Man is, is Mugen came in and their bikes were about $2 million each. Michael Sizz's bike was like 350. And Michael Sizz was building that shit out of his garage, You know, basically is a small shop in Oregon when you show up and you just have like two bikes at two million dollars each and you have you have 17 mechanics you know engineers back from honda which are highly educated they have access to formula one and jet technology and everything else it was kind of like well just go buy the win so anyway as far as the price capping i think is there's some some debate there but i think the engineering side of things i i like to see it open i like Mm -hmm. to see i like to see development i mean who would who would have thought that the, the ass sagging on the exit of the corners would be even a thing like but it doesn't make me grumpy like i don't know i mean i don't know mm. it's a weird yeah
0: thing.
1: but i'm not a big fan of control ecu's or control tires or anything i just want to let let development be development i mean yeah. in the states it completely backfired in my opinion when everyone's oh we're gonna be on Dunlops or we're gonna be on prellies and then it's whole the whole thing is I don't know. It's, to me, it was cool to have a tire war. It was cool to have a manufacturer war. It was, you know, it's sort of it brings everybody up. Like you have to compete and keep getting better at it. If everyone just says, "All right, you're all in the same ECU, the same same tires, the same weight limit," well, it's fucking, okay, I guess it's up to the riders. But a lot of times, the riders will be superior than the others. So you have the same three guys, or the same one guy, or the same two guys. And then the, the, you're guaranteed the dude's going to be a ninth every weekend. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't
0: know. I, I see it from both sides because I don't want to be the guy in charge of the rule book either, right? Because it's just wrong. But you, like, you only have Michelin. And Michelin says the, the biggest problem is the front tire. They say, well, we've got a new tire, but we need time to test it. Well, nobody wants to test it because they want to test other things. It's like, what are you going to do here? You you kind of need to fix the racing because it isn't what it was, but then again, is it better or is it worse? I don't know. Nostalgia is a disease, right? Kenny Roberts told us that famously. What is it? Nostalgia is a disease. Like you can't go back, right? You can say, well, that was a great era. That's true, but you can't go back to those points in time. You you can't take the genie out of the bottle, so to speak, right? And you can't put it back in. And I, I get all of that, but, it's just, it's just weird because it's – the Japanese have lost their way in MotoGP, given They'll Honda where they are. Again. They'll so find it. They well,
1: They'll I think they will it.
0: too. It's going to take them Look time. Look at the
1: Fireblade. A couple of years ago, the Fireblade was a box yep. full of neutrals, false neutrals, and everybody's killing themselves and ruining their careers all left and right on the Honda. Now everyone's tr- dying to get on a Honda. It
0: cycles. Yeah. Yeah. It's just – this is the rise of the of the European bikes now. That's know, just that's crazy. The, yeah, I mean, there's podiums that don't have a Japanese bike on it. You're just like, wow, it's crazy, okay. Man. I didn't see, think that was going to ever be possible in my lifetime. Didn't think I'd see mm. it. But, you know, I give, we talked about this. It's like, for me, the reason the Ducati is as good as it is, and the reason the KTM is probably the second best bike, is because those two bikes, their chassis, their engines, and everything else have all been designed from the ground up to incorporate all the gizmos at one time which makes it a superior bike where I think the Japanese have kind of just like, Oh, you put some wings on the front there. Oh, okay. We'll bolt some on the front too. And not without thinking about uh, what it
1: does. Have you had the opportunity to ride a Panigale V4, like a Panigale S a new one?
0: No, I've ridden the best. The the only Ducati I ever read was a 996, which was so interesting. Turned like a truck. I will tell you that.
1: (laughs) So let me just on topic, I'll share this. And I recently got to ride a new Panigale S uh, It's 1100 CC V4. I think it's a 14,000 RPM red line or some ridiculous thing it had 220 horsepower. It had a $9,000 type pipe on it with a flash DCU. Otherwise it was bone stock. So it was just bone stock. You bolt an exhaust on it and you flash the same ECU that it came with. And it's 220 horsepower at the rear wheel for 35 grand. Moral of this rant is you could not ride that bike without the electronics. It would be impossible. You have to have the traction control, the lean angle, the the gyro, um, the lean indicating gyro that cuts the, the power until it lifts up without the wheelie control. You could not ride that bike. It's too fast, too light, too nimble, too short. And I'm just, Talking to your point, these bikes are completely designed around the electronics now. And if for some reason they just, the electronics just turned off, but the bike still worked, you would crash within one corner. Like they don't work. They're too much. So, and it's a weird thing because having that, all that, five all that feel in the grip being electronic, it's completely detached. It used to be terrible. Now you really get used to it. I got to go to Jerez out there and ride with um, Zarco and Martine. uh, 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 What's his first name?
0: Johan Zarco and Jorge Martin.
1: Jorge Martin was there on the track with us, and um, we were all in the same identical stock panda galleys for a photo thing, a magazine thing. And dude, I just fun little side note. Martin went by me on the brakes going down that back straightaway at Jerez down into that big, you know, little sh- 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 slow right hand. They turned hander. six. Yeah. Dude, those kids are not just like, oh, they're MotoGP racers. How adorable. No, they actually have insane amount of talent like they have they have been doing this since they were four years old and they have exactly the knowledge of what that front pirelli will do because they have they train on these bikes all the time they have their own personal street bikes that are unmodified largely they run the same street tires and the same abs and stuff and do these guys they'll go in there and grab a whole handful of lever brake lever on the front until as hard as they can push until the abs starts to kick in microscopically and then they'll lean the bike trail brake into the corner without letting off the brake lever and just let the ABS stop it and then that by that point there's that gyro on the lean and then by the time they crack the throttle you can set how much slide you have on your knee separately and then you can decide how fat it drives and how much interaction how much um the TC kicks in the lack of power so you keep it pinned to the throttle now you're off the brake and on the throttle 100% as you lean the bike off your knee it kicks in the power electronically and then the wheelie control keeps it uh, kicks in so that you don't wheelie so you go down the back straight and then it's of course there's no clutch because it's auto blip downshift you grab a handful of front brake ding 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 gang, lean it down in there without any trail braking on the abs once you're on your knee you just nail the throttle wide open and then it takes you out of the corner electronically well fucking martin went by me man and i mean he went down to the he was on top of the corner at 100. 71 mile an hour nailed the brakes threw it down in the corner slid around and went out of the corner and i mean i was still like pretending to want to brake for the corner i was just now getting on the brakes i mean it was like retarded sorry that some people don't like that word it was ridiculous how fast those guys have migrated up to using all these electronics which they of course they have in MotoGP. gp sans the abs i don't think they allow abs yet
0: right there isn't an abs on the bikes yeah. I know but just just talking
1: on the electronics. They, the race for electronics are crazy good. They're so good.
0: It's actually <laughs> I remember, fun to ride. I yeah. I just I remember back when Paul Network said something about the first traction control was there. Yeah, well you just get to the apex and pin it, and then you just gotta let the computer straighten it all out.
1: Mm.
0: And I remember when he said it, I think it might have been I think he might have been racing. No, nah, he had, I think was it the Yamaha or was he on the cube? Pretty cute. I can't remember. Either way, that's what he said. He's like, well, you just got to get to the corner, get the apex and pin it. Let it all figure it out. I'm like, to me, I'm going, well, that takes the skill out of it, doesn't it? Right? Like, that was my first thought because I'm used to, like, dirt track. You're sliding it sideways, doing club with, like, no ABS, no nothing. You got, you're got you trying to rev match everything back down again, right? All that. No slipper clutches at the time when I was doing it. Chose my age. Long story short, too late. Ah, gotcha.
1: <laughs> How old are you?
0: Uh, 51. Uh,
1: 52, man. We were yeah. there. Yeah. We, we were, were in high school together.
0: Yes, we were. Just on the opposite side of the, opposite sides of the country.
1: If I'm not mistaken, BSB has uh, eliminated the electronics now. There's no, there's not even traction control. Yeah, um, they I'm took it out. Curious. You got to run
0: their own. Everybody has to run their own. Rich could tell us, but I'm pretty sure everybody runs, runs a, like a.
1: MoTeC, in it? MoTeC,
0: yeah. MoTeC, and there's, there's zero traction control, which was, and the BM, I remember they had a problem because the BMWs had variable valve timing. Right. So electronically it would advance or retard, not advance or retard the cam, but like VTEC and a Honda, right? Same concept only in a motorcycle, which that's really kind of cool, but the MoTeC had no part of it. So they had to like physically force the cams to be on the high end all the time so that it would work So Mm -hmm. the motors, which was kind of weird. I remember that part of it, but you know, to me, That's what the question becomes like, well, did you take the rider out of it? But then as you have rightly explained, there's a whole nother level of skill required to ride with all those electronics and to take advantage of it, right? You have to be talented enough to take advantage of what has been given to you. And if you can master that, you're going to be at the front. It doesn't matter. You're not a better rider because somebody put trash control on your bike or rev matched your downshifts for you or whatever it is, you still got to have some immense amount of talent to make a two wheeled <laughs> object go fast.
1: <laughs> you, yeah, you know? for sure. For sure. Absolutely. It, it used to be that the TC would just be a slight uh, enhancer of uh, tire life, you know, ever so slightly back when Matt Mladin and Suzuki had, y- Yoshimura were, were cheating and you could hear they had some kind of a TC kicking in when he would get off the corners and everyone on like, even watching on TV are like, listen to that. Did you hear that? Yeah, like, the ratcheting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what was that? Well, it was just because it was saving his tire microscopically. But now with the electronics, if you could just you know throw it wide open and just hold on, that's a whole different game. But it's true. I mean, you can still crash. The, you still need to put the bike in a certain place. The chassis are all different and the whole where to brake and where to get on the gas and also negotiate traffic and do the starts properly and also understand the electronics and work with the best team that allows, you know, a 20 year old kid to learn every single adjustment on those bikes which are madly adjustable if you can adjust absolutely every single little thing including you know rake and trail and length and swing arm pivot i guess and all of that and Mm -hmm. be able to get this kid to sort of understand it all and give some kind of a feedback there that's part of the game too
0: yeah i guess my only thing one of my points is they're asking the rider to do a hell of a lot in a short amount of time and i'm wondering if it's like not like fighter pilots, it, it, you can be overwhelmed by everything that you're doing. That you forget the things that are crucial, like running the plane out of fuel. And mm, I'm wondering. I doubt.
1: I doubt. You,
0: really? I don't know. I I'm. Doubt. I'm just curious. I'm. I'm. I have no idea. So I'm. Just throwing I it out. I can tell there. you as a
1: as a pilot. I mean, I've you know five hundred hours. I'm not some professional fucking fighter pilot, but I I do know about flying, and I know about how you kind of have to do a lot of things at the same time. You have to scan your gauges while you're looking for traffic, and you're following the path you're supposed to be on, and the altitude, and all this stuff. It, it just becomes
0: – Second like um, nature
1: of course i mean it just becomes completely secondary. but i'll tell you that's why they have a lot of checklists in the flying in the aviation world there are checklists that you are by law supposed to follow and i think some people might you know cut corners especially if you own an aircraft and you've owned it for eight years and you're like i don't need to check checklist. but the reason why they have checklists is so that you don't glaze over and forget one little minute thing which is well you're supposed to you know maybe cycle the the left tank and the right tank so that there's some air bubbles or whatever that that you know blah 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 blah, blah. but i don't think that you get too overwhelmed you know even with racing the tt for example you know there's you've got walls and sidewalks and cliffs and trees coming at you at 191 <laughs> miles an hour and yet you can still shift and turn and get your weight and look at the gauges, watch your head temperature, you know, your water temperature, whatever, you know, all these things just become, cause let's say seven out of 10 of the things become muscle memory and second nature. And then the three that you really have to focus on are only the three you have to normally focus on And then you, if you have a fourth and a fifth, that's an unusual rarity. So, you know what I mean? Like, you come out of the corner. Because you see these guys on the onboards with their shoulder cams on MotoGP. They come out of the corner. They hit that little mechanical push, that push the little thing. And then they come out of the corner. And as soon as they're going down the straightaway, just reach up and flick it back. Okay. I guess it's not that much shit,
0: you know. Yeah. Oh, I get One opinion. One opinion. Right. But I was going, I was also kind of coming from the standpoint, I, I can't remember if it was Quattro or somebody said, you know, there's not even time to go look at your pit board anymore and i think i think that was more because the bikes are fast they're i, I what scares me more than anything else is the lack of runoff room at most of the tracks that are motor gp goes to right okay i get it we're big boys motorcycle racing is dangerous you can die doing this but if you like i've said it twice on the show this year like even moto 2 bikes are reaching the tire barriers when they never used to before So you got to stop and go, I'm not trying to advocate for slowing this thing down, but I don't want motorcycles to bounce off the tire walls and go flipping into the stands because that's going to be the end of this at that point. Right. So,
1: yeah. Even at Coda, I think it was uh, Marcus's brother or somebody did. Somebody came off and fucking LA went all the way across the gravel trap and ended up at the wall. Yeah. I don't know. You know, they've, they can only, I think, uh, have so much gravel trap because then the fans get too far away and then it yeah. it suffers the show suffers.
0: Yep, there's I mean, no. Know, I don't know. There's again. This is a conversation for greater minds than ourselves, but we might as well just postulate, right? Why not? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I don't know, dude. I'm I'm all for progress. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not. I just am. I just. um It's almost like out of stubbornness to say no. I don't want to slow anything down. I want less rules. I want the human nature to take over and have our spirit and our ingenuity and and invent innovation just keep pushing 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 and that's just i just think that that breeds the greatest leaps and bounds next thing you know we'll be going to the moon and someone will be you know one of our species will be walking on it you know it's just you gotta like blow up some rockets you gotta like take some risks and you have to rethink different things i mean look at what elon musk is doing with his spacex shit he is reinventing things that that they couldn't dream of in the 60s when they were all doing all the saturn launches and stuff he's like rethinking like how to use the materials i don't know if you ever hear him chat
0: oh yeah i, I love listening like, to must talk it's fascinating dude, he'll
1: he'll be like okay this is how many materials we have how much does it cost how much titanium how much raw yeah titanium does it take? How much is this? How much? How, how, many, how, many, how many? And it's like, well, how many times can we rework that so that we don't have to use this much titanium and have this much machining and have this many parts? How can we reduce 177 things into 77 things? And they're all like, it's impossible. So why don't you go back and try it? And then they all come back and go uh, four years later and they've only got it down to 84, not 77. It's like, okay, we went from 160 to 84 parts. And it works better because it's lighter it as it's less complicated mm-hmm. it has less moving parts it's just cool like i think oh, yeah. less rules you know rethinking out the outside the box and it's, it trickles down to, to racing prototype motorcycles i don't know throw the kitchen sink at it why do i care you know yeah. like i think it's fun it's it, it's not motors it's not super sport racing it's not Correct. club racing it's not like it is moto gp it is the the, the top it is finally, you know, that we have one thing where the guys, all the best brains and the best racers get to sort of do something unique. And that's why it's fun to, to pay a hundred dollars to go watch it, is because it's something that's unobtainium to us. We can't, yes. I mean, 35 35 grand plus nine will get you forty-five thousand dollars will get you a fucking killer Ducati superbike. I mean, ridiculously good. But to get, and you know, that, to be fair, that's got the winglets, that's got the crew mm-hmm. the all the electronics, so that did trickle trickle down. It, yeah, sure. I, I don't, I don't know if they're going to have squatting devices on, on your best track day bikes. I don't know. Is that ever yeah. going to happen? It's kind Who of knows?
0: Weird. Yeah, it is. It, it is weird. But the one thing I'll say in favor is that it's now you can easily distinguish and explain to somebody what is the difference between a MotoGP bike and a World Superbike. There's a very distinct difference now. But when it was 990s, 800s, they were the same, right? You how, how could you tell somebody the difference? Well, you can say, hey, look, watch. See how this back end just dropped? That's a MotoGP bike because mm-hmm. they're trying to maximize the amount of traction and lower the center of gravity of the bike to help it accelerate to go faster in a shorter amount of distance where mm-hmm. you don't have that in a World Superbike. So you take your buddies to the track. You know, they look at that and they're like, "Well, what makes this different than my than my street bike?" And you're like, "Do you know Watch. if they
1: have ABS in World Superbike?"
0: Oh, that's a good question. I can't answer that one. Don't. they know have know. thousand
1: CC? Like Ducati has a thousand CC, Legera or some similar name. I don't know Super Legera or whatever the name is. I don't know what it is. But that's a thousand because doesn't it? It has to be a thousand. So they. I'm wondering if it has a non ABS because I know they don't have active suspension. On the Legera or whatever it's called, right? Yeah. So the BMW also does not have none of them have active suspension and therefore not ABS. Or I wonder.
0: I don't know. Good. I'll, I might have to find out. We'll have to know at some point.
1: I don't watch World Superbike. I, I'm busy enough with just the MotoGP. <laughs> I watch like every practice and stuff, and I just cannot. I can't. I don't have enough time in my life to watch World Superbike.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I, it's enough enough for me to watch qualifying. Moto GP races <laughs> for Moto GP, Moto 2, Moto 3, and then catch some Moto America to talk about that, which mm-hmm. mm, is all there. So, I mean, you know, that was the other big debate that's been raging here of late is like Moto America, like it's a shadow of what it was in the 90s. I mean, mm-hmm. I agree it is, but then again, these are two different things at two different times, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I
1: think that they've brought that shit on themselves. I mean, if you <laughs> If I don't, I just just I I was there in the '90s, and I was I don't know, carry on Honda, and I was with Attack, and I was with uh, Graves Motorsports, and back then we had manufacturers clawing to spend money, and we had tire wars, and we had you know great riders from all over the world coming here to make a living, and I just think when DMG took over, I I opted out. I said, I'm oh, not only am I done with this riding on this, I'm done watching it. Because I just knew it would be 20 years before they found their asses again. And I have just been grumpy and like stubborn. And I have not watched. I don't think I've ever watched a Moto America race ever. Which is ignorant on my point to even talk about it. I'm not really talking about it. I'm just saying. I don't like the vibe. I don't yeah. like. It's like a glorified club race. There's yeah, no manufacturer said backing. There's controlled race to controlled tires. And a bunch. Of, there's no factory teams really. I mean, no. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I, I... I get it. They they created their own problem. However you want to look at it. I mean, we can all sit there and point blame because it's real easy to do that. And there's a like I think the difference is, is that with Moto America and where we are and that whole scenario, there wasn't one thing that was a problem. It's like a commercial airliner crash. It was a chain sequence of events in an order in which engineers never thought that there was going to be that order that created this entire chaos that became Mm -hmm. where we are. And Rainey, I think, is the right person to have in command of it all to straighten Mm -hmm. it all back out. However, it's just going to take more time. It's gotten better. Like, they've now got it to where it's like on YouTube. And honestly, if you go watch the second race from Road Atlanta, Superbikes, with Heron... Bobier, Gagne running at the front in, mm. a four, in a four-man train. You you will go that was if you if I didn't tell you that that was in 2023, you would have sworn it was about as good as the action at the front back in the 90s. Oh yeah. Good. So it's it's cl- it's better, but those are one-offs, right? It's not cuz you mm. get we get to the tight twisty track at Barber, the BMW doesn't have anywhere to stretch its legs. The Yamaha's are dialed in and handle very sweet there, and nobody else can really run with them when Gagne puts his head down. And that's just where it is. So, has Gagne done European racing at all? I think Gagne did a couple of World super bike one-offs, and because I, I think his attack team went to. But he doesn't.
1: He doesn't come from the Spanish like tr- like no, series growing up.
0: Or something. Uh, I don't. No, I don't think so. That's a good question to ask. I don't have that answer either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm full of no answers. We'll make it up. Maybe uh, he did.
1: Well, like you know, Bobeille <laughs> went over there and did. Bobeille went over the bowl yep. um, in Moto Two. Took him a while. I mean, I don't, know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about this other kid though in the back. What's his name? Uh, Sean Kelly.
0: Sean Dylan Kelly. Yeah, he was. He's, yeah,
1: yeah, he was. was he one of the sport. fast guys in the states.
0: Yeah, he won successive Super Sport championships, and. You know, if you think about it at the time, 600 and they were six motor two bikes for 600 Hondas. So it was kind of like, oh, hey, hey, this kid's probably got a chance to go. And his big thing was he was, is, you know, he was Californian, fluent in Spanish. And, you know, I think maybe he's turned a corner this year because I think anybody who goes over there is going to have a tough time learning all the tracks and adapting to that and adapting to an, an incredibly rigid frame. That is far more rigid than anything you've ever even. Yeah, different
1: tarmacs and everything. Yeah, it's just different. completely
0: different, right? So you're going to need a year. But he, the last race, he missed out on getting out of the Q2 to Q1. He missed it by, I think, 58 thousandths of a second, which is that's less than a blink of an eye, right? I can't blink that fast. So he's right there to getting close to getting over. It's the second time at everything. And I'm hoping mm-hmm. for better things to come from him. But well, it I shows
1: just how good Nicky did, you know? I know. Nicky won the fucking world championship in races, you
0: know? I don't know. I, you know, you go back and you think about that. It's been a long time. I mean, that was 2006.
1: But he was the brightest the America had I oh, mean, and, and he has was, had.
0: I spent he was, my whole time racing all the Haydens, and you knew from the first time I ever saw Nicky race a bike on dirt track, you knew he was going to be a world champion. You just could tell the kid mm. was just beyond it. I mean, you know, quick story Lima half mile, first time I ever seen Nikki He's on an 80 Kawasaki. He's so short, he can't touch the ground with both feet. Like he's literally got one leg barely over the gas tank and he's got his left foot on the ground. Mm. And so this gets, you know, slick pea gravel half mile that had been run the night before and grooved up during the national. So we're running the amateurs the next day. He comes into that first turn. Never puts his foot down, never lets off the throttle on that 80 and just ran it wide open all the way around it. And he just everybody just stood there and went, world champion yeah. in the making. And he got yep. there. It was just crazy. I mean, it just shows you where the level is. It also kind of shows you where the level of Moto P changed to, right? I mean, I think there's with the coming of well, like what Marque- do you mean? well what do you
1: mean it changed? When did what did it change to?
0: Well from? okay. So the I always think that like I look at Rossi and the thing that I admire about Rossi is Rossi reinvented the way he rode four different times, right? He went Mm from, he had to figure out how to ride a 500 and successfully did it won the last 500 title. Maybe somewhat by default, but still he did it. Rode 990s on a limited traction control. Rode again 800s where now it wasn't about sliding the bike. It was all about mastering corner speed and trusting the front. And then now he reinvented himself again one more time. To ride mm-hmm. the thousands that are now elbows down on a thousand CC motorcycle. And then you sort of have this next coming of like Rossi kind of got the camp going, got Bezeki, Benyaya, Marini, all those guys running around the track. And he started teaching them everything that he would do to be good. And yet they kind of pushed because then Marquez shows up and like it or not, he pushed the goalpost. He moved the goalpost like, when Robert showed up in Europe when he first got there, he pushed the goalpost to a whole nother place, right? And won. And sort of Marquez kind of did that same thing. And I, Rossi just couldn't adapt to it in my mind because Rossi had gotten to the point of age was creeping up on him. There just wasn't a whole lot left in the old warhorse. However, he did keep getting faster, right? But it all, it all moved, right? Like the the riders have changed the bikes have changed and it just keeps pushing to where these guys are just going so much faster right away than what it was before That you know it's like they're changing
1: the, they're they're needing to change due to all the changes in the types of tires and tarmac and electronics and the chassis geometries i think have changed too which you know complement certain types of riding styles the newer ones yeah. coming from moto gp or moto 2
0: yeah true i mean the the interesting thing now to me is like watching the pipeline of kids come from Moto three to Moto two, to go to Moto GP like Quattro was a CEV kid that was going to just blow everybody away. He was the Marquez killer. He got into Moto three and never won a race, got into Moto two and only won two. Then showed up and became a world champion. It's like, you just like, you don't know when people are going to like bloom. Right. It just like, how do you spot that talent? That's the question I always had. How People saw something in Quattararo, and people have seen things in in you know Bezecchi or whoever.
1: Yeah, there's so many variables, but don't forget that it's not just like if if Quattararo was winning uh, two or three different championships in Spanish and or Italian uh, smaller bike younger classes, and he just almost unbeatable, and then he gets on some kind of a Moto three team. Dude, I promise you, it's not, it's very likely that his Moto 3 team and his Moto 3 bike was inferior to the ones that were winning everything. And then he goes up to Moto 2, and I'll promise you that probably his fucking Moto 2 team was not up to snuff with the top of the line.
0: Right. It was a boss of Core as a speed up. Yeah, speed up when everybody else had Cali. It wasn't
1: a Calyx or whatever. So yeah. the, the thing is, is and and then it's of course once you start getting depressed, <laughs> and your team starts to turn on you because it's all very psycho social and lots. You know, the whole racing thing is also very social. You show up at a new team, and everyone's like, "Oh, hi, man, you're our hero and you're our our hope." And then the bike sucks, and you're like, "Hey, man, uh, yeah, uh, no, yeah, uh, we had fun last night, yeah, but listen, I'm getting killed here, here, and here because of these reasons." And they go. Oh, and they look at the bike and they go, wow, we really worked hard on this. He's, he's not appreciative of it. And next thing you know, there becomes like this elevated problem because the bike is sucks and the team doesn't want to admit it. And then the team gets grumpy towards you, which is a total 180 from what it was three months ago when everything was happy go lucky. Next thing you know, it's the seventh month and you can't stand each other and you're losing. And now he has no motivation to do well. I can tell you from riding in Sicily not long ago with all the different bikes back-to-back, they're all 1,000 cc's. When I got on that Yamaha, I'm like, aha. And now you get the philosophy of a Yamaha at the high end. It was a top-of-the-line, magnesium-wheeled, state-of-the-art M1, whatever. It handled so well and so easy and so stable compared to everything else. It could just be that Quatnaro got about this sort of break. And he finally got a bike that really honestly worked for the first time in his fucking life for three years. Like he was just struggling and struggling, but he was still the guy that won three Spanish championships back then. He still had the talent and the drive and the winning. He just had to get out of a funk that he was probably put in. And now listen, I'm just guessing all this stuff. My only point is never underestimate how shitty his situation was. You can't oh, just yeah. say, you know, like, oh, he just blossomed now out of the blue. It's a lot of factors. It's physical, like, technical stuff, too. And it's also emotional stuff. Like, if he's not getting along with the team, it could just be. look at fucking Vinales, who's a basket case. But when he was 16 or whatever, he, tore the world he up, fell man. out. He fell out, and he was like, I'm, I'm going to the airport. F you guys. And then, you know, everyone thought that he was going to, you know, just be gone forever because he's a middle finger. Dude, all this tension and stuff is probably more common than not you know, like behind the scenes, not saying when everything's going well. I mean, right now, like Quattano freaking out. I'm surprised they haven't replaced that bushy haired guy with the glasses yet who sends him out on fucking in the rain rain after he's already six laps down. I go, hey, go back out again. And he's like, really? Why? And then he crashes his brains out. It's like, that's a bad decision. You know, anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was an amazingly bad decision. But yeah, I mean and all that, you know, all yeah. that. Oh, it all plays onto you. What uh, Jeremy Burgess, I think, had the best line about all that. He's like, if the racer says he can go faster with a set of gold-plated handlebars, you put a set yeah. of gold-plated handlebars on the damn bike.
1: Yeah, like, there's a lot of egos in mechanics uh, too, though, and a lot of mechanics are good, good riders too, which is something yeah. a lot of people don't know. Really, sometimes the mechanics are better than in naturally talented, they're better than some of the guys, let's say, mid-pack in the race. You know, like if they were given the opportunity, some of the mechanics huh. like, used to ride, or they rode, they ride at home at the ranch or whatever their whole lives, and they're like super talented. I found huh. that too, which is weird. That's but anyway, I, never thought, weird. I
0: never I even contemplated that, ever. Yeah, But nobody huh.
1: likes a whiner, nobody likes a complainer, nobody likes a pussy. You know, like, oh, man up, dude, would you just ride around it? Would you please? Uh, Kenny Roberts <laughs> would. If we had Mark Marquez, he would ride around it, you know? You're yeah. Like Well, yeah, maybe not because he's not on the same thing. Maybe, you know, if he rode this thing, he would be, you know, behind me. Like you don't, you you can never know. It's, it's, it's weird. It's such a complex thing. And it's also, ugh, it's a little bit nerve wracking. I mean, being racing for a team is more nerve wracking than doing it yourself. Cause doing it yourself is fun. Matter of fact, when we did that Baja thing, dude, it was the first time I had actually been in, in charge of my own bike again. For like 20 years, I had not had one single input on the bike, the crew, the, the, you know, the the trucks, the everything. It was the first time again that we kind of did it ourselves. And it was so much fun because it's all on you. When you're riding for other stuff, there's tons of money put, put into it. All this organization, all this personnel, all these logistics and all these sponsors and shit. And then they look at you and they're like, yeah, all right, now go on, let's go. You know, yeah. be the be a superstar, and you're like, okay, well, listen, I'll do my best. You know, I mean, I've got some talent, I got some experience. Let's do this thing. But it doesn't always work out like they want it to, and sometimes it does. And when things are going good, boy, are things good. Anyway, I don't know if mm-hmm. Quatnaro went through some hard times. You know, with with all things considered, he was yeah. always the same guy, same rider, same talent.
0: I'll tell you, the last time I saw a rider look as depressed or as thousand yards starry as he did the last, mm-hmm. wherever the last place they were riding yeah. Le Mans. Is, well, the only time I can think of seeing anybody who looked that bad was literally Rossi on the Ducati. when <laughs> motor oh GP gosh, yeah. same yeah. It was that same look. I mean, it's like that same, like, and then he said something like, yeah, we go into most meetings and sit down about what we're going to talk about on the bike and everyone just sits there. Nobody says a thing because nobody's got any idea on how to make it any better, apparently. Which is that can't be good. Like that's not the mental psyche mm-hmm. that's going to kill you, right? Like if t- you said it, the team is not behind you. How are you yeah. going to be better, right? Now like, they
1: can't find a rider that can't win on a Ducati. You know, look at the hell that cycled.
0: Yeah, but there's a whole different philosophy in how Ducati operates as opposed to the way Yamaha, Honda, or KTM operate. Because you, if you see Bicek win, you see Tardazzi and Gigi Dolina and all the other heads of Ducati come down to that pit box and congratulate the crews and the teams and everything. Yeah, I get it. Pramac is getting a setup sheet. And I get that there was a huge book of setup notes that went to you know VR46 as well. But Ducati is like a family. They They seem to value the input that everybody puts into that motorcycle to mm-hmm. make it a motorcycle that anybody can get on and with enough tweaks make it go fast mm-hmm. whereas take it for what it's worth my opinion and I make shit up too is like Honda and Yamaha don't want to listen sometimes they they don't there's Honda's like nope we're going to build a motor and it's really fast so here go for it cuz that's sort of what they did that's sort of how they operate for decades you know, mm-hmm. it's not about it handling, right? It's not, I mean, think about how long they pioneered, how long they persisted, Honda persisted with a single crank engine where, you know, Suzuki, I'm talking 500s, right? So when Suzuki, Yamaha, they had twin cranks counter-rotating. So then finally Honda decides like in 90, ooh, what was that? 90, I want to say 91 when they started spinning the motor backwards and doing it's Honda for the big bang. And then, you know, made all the pulses become big bang. That was completely mm-hmm. di- because they fixed the motor, right? They never fixed the chassis. They fixed the motor. <laughs> so do you I know, that of...
1: Panigale, that Panigale S that I rode with Martina and that has a counter rotating crank as well. Nice. Do you know that? Do you know that when you get on the gas, it, it, it fights the wheelie because it's spinning the opposite direction. Right. And that all... when you break, it tries to keep the rear end down. And it's, it's like, well, why didn't they do this before? And the reason is, the answer is because it's very difficult to change the direction of the crank to the drive. And that mm-hmm. gear that swaps direction, so that if the crank's going backwards, it's going yep. counter to the wheels, then you have to have a you know a, a, a reduction of some sort that changes that direction. And they figured it out. That was like the key point of the V4 working all of a sudden is that they they were able to ch- run the crank backwards and then have a gear that was less friction. Obviously, you can imagine the amount of potential drag that all those extra little gears would be to try to change the direction of the crank to the counter shaft sprocket. But that's mm-hmm. what they figured out. That was the big patented kind of like, Whoa! yeah change, change Yeah, it's
0: mind. not easy to make a motor run the opposite way. I mean, you also get the advantage of going left to right in a chicane, right? You've neutralized the gyro effect of the tires or minimize it, it to some extent. It's weird.
1: Another reason think- why the electronics are, are necessary because when the first time you ride one of these V4s that are spinning in the opposite direction, you go into a corner and you're like, <gasps> like whoa, what is that? Like you just fall over. And then you go that, you fall over in the, the other way. And you're like, <laughs> it's like you're just sort of, the, it doesn't take any effort. And yet you have 200 horsepower. And so you, and you have mad brakes, like huge brakes, big, big brakes. Yeah. So anyway, you're just sort of like dancing on top of it. <laughs> oh, oh, whoa, whoa. You know, it's almost like you're, you're trying to ride a cloud, it's like it doesn't weigh anything. It, it'll just blow in the wind. It's like a feather. And so um, it's almost like you're riding a fly. I, the fly is the only thing. I just, just got to say this real quick. I just did a photo shoot for Scorpion Helmets and they had a racing drone out there, a professional licensed drone racer guy who does high speed photography with motorcycles and other things where he can match the cornering and the acceleration and shit of a high performance vehicle with a human in it. And I had never, ever seen one of these before in person to see a drone with a camera on it change direction so abruptly and so effortlessly. It was the only thing I could like even think that's like a fly. You know how a fly in your house, like a little house fly goes like left and right and up and down and stuff. That's what this drone was doing. Moral of the story is the Panigale felt like that agile. It was ridiculous wow. like it would accelerate faster than anything you can imagine and it would turn left and right faster than anything and then it would stop on a dime and so you had to really understand how to ride it before you could ride it fast and and a lot of that was about their electronics
0: that's all awesome. you had to have it
1: you had to have yeah. electronics. it wouldn't work otherwise
0: see that's the that's that's to me that's brilliant insight that like i don't have that in my repertoire i'm becoming a dinosaur right so it's like not having that me too me too <laughs> it's nice to hear that because like you know that like gives me food for thought to think about when things you well know, what's happening now it adds more well to it trickled
1: so. that had trickled down from MotoGP so it's kind yeah. of the, the, the up the up start of that whole thread was that MotoGP is doing really well Ducati is doing very well and that has a lot to do with them innovating obviously here we go again where you know every every week they and now what are they doing? They have they have ground effects on the what is no, the it's, latest
0: one? It's mm. it like, like the swing arm? Yeah, it's the swing arms have little flips and they have bubbles. The the fairings that are down on the sides have different shaped bubbles and whatnot, which allows them to basically compress the air like a Formula One car would while you're leaned over. Aprilia started that one. But so and alaish said that it was really helpful at like uh ASIN. Like it felt so stable in the corners, the high speed corners. I'm like, woof, we're we're playing in the territory that Kenny Roberts brought us to because he had John Barnard sitting there one time thing. I think it was John Barnard. I, it doesn't matter. The guy was a Formula One designer thinking, well, what if what, what what if we work with the air that's between the side of the bike and the and the and the, and the, and the tarmac? What, 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 mm-hmm. what can we do there? What what can <laughs> we add to it? And it's like I remember Roberts doing that with I think he did that with the the three cylinder he was running or whatever. I can't, I think so, so. They're
1: putting like a boundary layer or a ground effect of some sort, like some sort, yeah. Of compressed.
0: Yeah, they're just I changing was wondering, the
1: flow. Just just the other day, I was I was looking into, um, they used to use compressing the air that went through a radiator, like on a P 51 Mustang. There's a big scoop underneath a P 51 Mustang.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And they would take the heat that would expand, they would bring in cool, fresh air relative wind into the radiator. It would get super, super hot, super. Uh, heated, and they would use that expanding gases as a part of the thrust out the back of the scoop. So they actually had a little tiny, um, normally aspirated jet propulsion hmm. underneath that plane, just based on the expansion of air through the hot radiator. And I was wondering if they were secretly doing that in MotoGP, possibly where they'd have all these inlets, all these little extra scoops off the sides, little tiny things, and they weren't using that somehow or another to to filter um, through the radiator and the engine heat and then have it exhaust somewhere and actually give them an extra one mile an hour. I mean, wouldn't that be cool?
0: That'd be cool. I mean, heck, anything's possible. That's, I mean, if tires are black or a black art, aerodynamics is like, I don't know, devil worshiping in some way because it's <laughs> like, how you know air does weird things I get it it's a fluid and it's a and there you can do all kinds of studies and whatnot with it right but you 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 look at these bikes and they got these little flick and that little flick and this here and you're going mm. whoa what what are you well, guys is- trying to do?
1: You know mm-hmm. what else is going to change a lot if it hasn't already? I'll bet you there's there's version 1.7 right now out there, and maybe Formula One and even MotoGP. But AI is is so powerful. I yeah, don't know if you've got scary. a chance to, pl- to play with it, but uh, I've been really really interested in AI since the very first generation, second, third, third point five, three point eight, and now four. Uh, it's ridiculously cool how much information it has been trained on, how much it's it, it has ingested, and if, for example. You could just write it, understand, have it understand the molecules of air in a wind tunnel situation. It could probably come up with new solutions that we could have never have thought of, at least not immediately. And say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you put a bubble on the side of the thing and create a ground effect, and then it'll repel. Dah, 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 dah. And once it gets into ground effect, because you know, when a wing, the half length of a wing, when you get towards the landing of the tarmac on the on the runway, it starts a cushion of air, and it actually you can float on it and have it creates its own lift and but it's exactly math like it's exactly the distance of like the tip to the tip to the to the ground dot, 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 dot. well i bet you an ai uh generated um advice you know it's going to give it some new ideas that they're, you're going to start seeing things they may not admit to it but ai could actually help in the aerodynamics umbrella of uh motorsports you no know,
0: sure i mean who knows You could. If you feed it enough information, it's going to, you know, it's just an algorithm that's going to develop its own algorithm to get you an algorithm to what you want. I mean, essentially, Mm. it's kind of where it is. When you know
1: everything that we've ever known ever in one place, it's, you know, and you also teach it to output things that, I mean, think about engine design, combustion chambers, the shapes of pistons or electrical motors. I mean, all of these things are going to go stress- stratosphere any day now because of AI. Yeah. It's all going to be rewritten, rewritten rewritten when it understands the physics behind it. When the AI actually understands what it is that you're asking it and what it, it's going to go back in its bank and go, well, they did this and it didn't work. They did this and it worked in this way. This little change made this and this little change didn't make that. And then it'll just within seven seconds go, Oh, have you thought of this? And you're like, Oh, you know, it's almost like that transparent aluminum in, um, Star Trek four yeah they, they go back in time and like well have you you know and he gives them the he goes well here's here's the formula and he goes oh, i never thought of that you can get you know instead of having seven foot of glass you could have like one one inch of of this particular thing based on the future traveling back in the past i don't know it's fun
0: yeah it's fun to think about well mark it's been a great uh, 90 minutes well has been I, yeah it just flies i mean uh, it's getting late here on the on the East Coast for me, uh, so I will thank you for for joining me and just Rapid Motorcycles. I do want to get back to you with you after the TT. I want to know how things go up in the box, man. Is that cool?
1: Yeah, sure. Let's all see right. how it all works out. And if you guys are interested, um, you can sign up for TT Plus um, online, and you can subscribe to it. It's twenty nine dollars, and it's. Every minute the bikes are on the track, it's live. Yep. And that's never happened before last year. So there's got four helicopters, 28 cameras all around the track. It's it's a big organism. Like it's a massive undertaking. So if you guys are into it, check it out. And I will probably, if all goes to plan and my plane don't crash, I'll be one of the voices that are talking most of that time.
0: Sounds like a plan. All right. All right. Yep. Thanks, Mark. And
1: then you can write write me letters and say you suck, you know, like you're an <laughs> idiot. and Why don't you, you know, all that it would be fun. Yeah,
0: well, we can do that.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. And hello, MotoPod. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's been a long time. And I hope you're all doing well.
0: All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Mark.
1: All right, Bye. See you. See you, Jim.
0: See you.